what we do is inspire people to change. And when we talk to people from the depth of our own self, which we have discovered isn't wounded, isn't traumatized, isn't victimized, doesn't need any more time, has nothing to overcome, and is always at all times, places, and circumstances whole. When we speak from that dimension of ourself to others, even about their physical symptomatology, we provide the invitation to to go deeper and we introduce, we say, okay, I, I, you know, I try to draw a connection to people between the symptom, their shoulder, their asthma, their infertility, always drawing a connection between what they're complaining about and saying they want to change, make a connection between that, their belief system and their behaviors and draw a connection and, and pretty soon the person feels moved because we're speaking to them from a depth of limitless care. Hi everyone, I'm Liz Baer, acupuncturist and co-founder of CIH. I'm excited to bring to you this insightful conversation with Lonnie Jarrett. Lonnie Jarrett is recognized worldwide as a leading practitioner, author, scholar, and teacher of East Asian medicine. He's been practicing acupuncture and Chinese herbology in Stockbridge, Massachusetts since 1986, and is the author of three meticulously crafted books, which are classics or are soon to be classics in the field of Chinese medicine. This is a discussion about why Lonnie was drawn to acupuncture and Chinese medicine and his experiences working with patients and transforming their health. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Lonnie, to the podcast. We're so happy and honored to have you here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So this is the first podcast that, that Liz and I have done together. It's very exciting to have you on, Liz, as well. Yeah, it's fun to be with you, Andy. So I think um, we know that, uh, Lonnie, you've been recognized worldwide as a leader and kind of developing the, I would say, the future of East Asian medicine. I know Liz can probably talk a little bit better about that, but you're really a leading practitioner, author, scholar, and teacher, and, and just reading some of your works, um, almost like also we weaving a web of sort of the philosophical underpinnings of East Asian medicine, kind of where where it's been, um, where it is now, and kind of where it's going. Um, so uh, you have dedicated most of your life to the field of Chinese medicine between seeing patients in private practice in Massachusetts, teaching and mentoring students, and of course, writing your opus, you know, magnum opus books as well. Um, just from your stories, it sounds like you were drawn to the healing arts from a very young age. Uh, could you kind of tell us about that and maybe just have our audience get to know you a little bit? Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, to just to make it simply, you know, I think the moment of conception is not a neutral event. And we come in with a direction. And I literally remember the moment when I was three years old that my mother read me Bambi. Bambi's mother got shot by a hunter and I started crying. And she said, well, when you grow up, you can be a veterinarian. And I said, what's that? And she said, it's a doctor that heals sick animals. And I said, okay. And literally at that moment, at three years old, I, it was always in my consciousness that I was going to go into medicine and be a healer. 
I mean, I didn't become a veterinarian, but that was always the direction of things. And as I, as I grew, I got interested in, uh, I started studying martial arts when I was 10 and my best friend was Chinese whose parents ran the laundry in town. And we used to go into Chinatown to watch Kung Fu movies on weekends. And, and they would always stop by the pharmacy to pick up herbs. And I was just introduced to it at a young age. And when I was about 13, 14, I found all the Chinese philosophical texts in my in my mother had a huge library in the house. And I found the I Ching as well as all of Burden Watson and James Legg's translations and the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita. And by 14, I was reading all of them. And when I was 17, I wrote my college entrance essay on the difference between Eastern and Western worldviews. And I discussed Chinese medicine. When I was 22, I graduated from college in neurobiology and took a 10-week course in five element acupuncture that was in 1980 and um went through graduate school in neuroscience and left neuroscience to go into chinese medicine and uh was in school from 84 to 86 learning five element acupuncture in school i met leon hammer and when I graduated in 86 and moved up to Western Massachusetts, I contacted Leon, who was practicing about an hour and 20 minutes away in Saratoga, New York, and apprenticed and studied with him for 10 years and learning pulse diagnosis and very deep Chinese physiology and um, have been in practice, you know, uh, since 19. 85 but 1986 here and I, I practiced for 37 years and done about 95,000 clinical sessions and as I got into clinical practice Chinese medicine was very young in this country when I got interested in it and there were literally no scholarly resources and it wasn't until about 82 that Monford Porkert's first books came out and Ted Kapschuk's book Web That Has No Weaver came out. And even then, those were the only two books and resources were pretty thin. And I knew I was doing something in the treatment room and that there was a lot more going on than I had been taught by my teachers. So I taught myself a fair amount our classical Chinese and learned the language of the medicine. I had been reading the philosophical textbooks and the, the alchemical textbooks, the cultivational texts my whole life. I had practiced an embodied practice of martial arts. I'm a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I had studied Hapkido. I've been doing Qigong regularly since 1980 and meditating since 1972. I had learned, uh, you know, transcendental meditation in ninth grade. And so I was looking for, I knew there was a lot more going on, but it wasn't certainly in any of the books. Certainly it wasn't in the web that has no weaver. It was pointed to by Monford Porkert's texts. And I, I learned to get some degree of facility with the classical Chinese characters and the etymological textbooks and just read, you know, went very deep into study so I could 
articulate the depth of what I saw going on in the treatment room. And, you know, that has continued through my three books and my inquiry ever since. And I, I've been with several spiritual teachers and communities and um, have been a free agent for about 10 years. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, um, we have so many acupuncturists in Maryland, or we have Yes. Traditionally had a lot of because of the school, which was Thai Sophia and then, you know, Maryland University of Integrative Health. Mm -hmm. um, and but, you know, oftentimes I find when folks come into <clears throat> our office, um, they some are very familiar with five element acupuncture. But a lot of people come in with the mindset of like, you know, I've got my elbow hurts or <laughs> how can you fix this issue or that issue? Um I was wondering if you could help explain to our audience a little bit about what's what distinguishes five element from other styles. And then also you've taken five element like that tradition that you first learned and, and have mm -hmm. kind of exploded it into bringing in all of these other different, you know, philosophical and um, psychological models. So would you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, in Chinese, to have a real integral grasp of Chinese medicine involves understanding medicines that are based on number systems zero through 13. And the five elements is one of those. Hmm. And the five elements is a deeply beautiful system that is ecologically based and can be looked at as farming in people. And this medicine arose in an agrarian culture. The, the textbooks were written 500 to 300 BC, the, you know, the main medical textbooks after thousands of years of development of the medicine. And the five element tradition in particular is, is an ecological view of humanity. And I have to say on my on my 13th birthday, which was April 21st, 1970, I went into Greenwich Village to see the Broadway musical Hair. And it was the first Earth Day. Yeah. And there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and pictures of this little blue-green ball on flags and banners and buttons everywhere floating in space, which is really the dawning of holistic awareness coming online in the mainstream and of a cosmocentric view, like, you know, we're just on this little ball in space. And the Clean Air Act, water, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, the Environmental Protection Act, the Endangered Species Act, were all passing then. And you kind of had a view, I had a view as a 13-year-old, like the adults are on this, we're taking care of it, it's all good. And when I went into, when I took that 10-week class, the thing that really, there were two things that happened. One, I had this deep recognition of the imperative to learn and become this medicine. And that was rooted in the deep ecological view of the times. And I realized that the five element tradition 
that medicine was that medicine is politics and medicine ha- there's no more political statement one can make than defining what is health and what is ill what is illness and i'm sure this was influenced at the time because i had literally just finished college and my last semester focused on the writings of michel foucault who whose basic thesis was to deconstruct power hierarchies and that knowledge is power but power is knowledge and i recognized medicine as one of the most potent forces to deliver values through and i really saw the ecological worldview of the five elements as one of the most significant vehicles through which one could change the consciousness of culture to reenchant the world my my overwhelming feeling after by the time i had taken that acupuncture class i had worked at albert einstein medical school for a year and published neuroscience in one of the world's leading cellular biology journals and had a revelation in the electron microscope room it wasn't about consciousness it was about the structure of cells and that's physical but consciousness was completely missing and for me chinese medicine and particularly this beautiful five element tradition was the perfect synthesis of art science philosophy alchemy mythology magic rationality and transrationality and it it just brought together for me i had this instantaneous recognition that this is everything that i haven't learned in science and to be whole i have to become this medicine wow <laughs> yeah and that's why when you <laughs> when we go to an acupuncturist sometimes they say i didn't know that this was acupuncture and you're like yeah yeah we get, we get that all the time yeah, we, we start. Well, well, we meet people. A good practice. So, the Bodhisattva vow begins by declaring, "May I be the doctor and the medicine." And it doesn't take much to become a doctor. A person of any reasonable intelligence can do it. It just learns. It just takes passing some tests and learning a technical language. That's the theory. But to become the medicine takes as many lifetimes as we have. It, it's a, a position of acknowledging that we didn't have to come back. And we agreed to come back for the privilege of helping take the wounded and suffering to the distant shore. And that we were the contract for coming back is I will experience anything I have to experience, any of the vicissitudes of life. I'll suffer whatever I need to be suffer for the sake of being shown what I need to be shown so I can be a vehicle to help ease the suffering of other people. And that becomes the context of our life. And if that's the context of our life, we literally become the medicine in service to others. And I just think it's very powerful in a materialistic culture when a person is led into a treatment room by whatever symptom they have. 
I always teach that conservative people go to doctors so they can get drugs and surgery so they can um, feel better without having to change. And liberal people become to acupuncturists, body workers, homeopaths, so they can feel better without having to change. And what we do is inspire people to change. And when we talk to people from the depth of our own self, which we have discovered isn't wounded, isn't traumatized, isn't victimized, doesn't need any more time, has nothing to overcome, and is always at all times, places, and circumstances whole, when we speak from that dimension of ourself to others, even about their physical symptomatology, we provide the invitation to, to go deeper. And we introduce, we say, okay, I, I, you know, I try to draw a connection to people between the symptom, their shoulder, their asthma, their infertility, always drawing a connection between what they're complaining about and saying they want to change make a connection between that, their belief system, and their behaviors. And draw a connection, and, and pretty soon the person feels moved because we're speaking to them from a depth of limitless care, of a depth of concern and care that is rare. And we're speaking to all the dimensions of their life and all the dimensions of their experience. One of the, one of the strongest structures that potentiates, potentiates suffering in people is that of separation and the illusion caused by separation that what's happened to them in their life is personal on its private. And basically we're all having it may be too far to say the same, but we're all having a very, very similar life experience. Each of us experience, we, we're all having the same life experience, but as individuals, different aspects of that experience are emphasized by degrees, but none of them are unique. Everyone's been betrayed, everybody's been wounded, everyone's been misunderstood. Everyone's been abandoned. Everyone hasn't been listened to. Um, everyone has a, sen a sense of isolation. And almost all of us have grown up in the context of an inherently limited view of possibility. And um, when we're spoken to by someone who has realized the universality of the human experience within themselves, it can be very profoundly moving and awakening and an invitation to, to be met at an uncommon depth that um, is different from a 15-minute insurance visit <laughs> broken into 15-minute billable segments where, where the physician or the nurse sits down and and they try to make connection with you for a minute or two. It, you know, it's a different experience.
I've heard you say that um, most patients come into the treatment room in a relative state of shock. Yes. You want me to talk about that? I do. I well, do. Because I think what you're ta- I mean, what I'm hearing is like it's that we come so much much of our perception is that we're in this we are separated we're separated from the present self to the past self what could have been who we used to be before this thing happened we're separated from the parts of ourself that are actually an integrated whole and we think that they're all separate we feel isolated from our communities mm-hmm. that all seems like it's part of the shock. Sure. I mean, I mean, the process of a soul incarnating into a body is quite a thing. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, people like Wilhelm Reich and Stanislaw Graf and Christina Graf have talked a lot about birth trauma. And then, you know, even after that, um, public school, and just being raised in our families cre- creates a lot of, you know, lays upon us a lot of content, unquestioned content, um, and a, a lot of momentum to socialize us into culture, into a membership collective in culture. And um, I think we can all agree that there, there are a lot of unwholesome aspects to culture and a lot of um, a lot of unwholesome momentum behind a lot of constructs in culture that grew out of early magic and mythic consciousness, which just and even even out of rational consciousness, you know, the Cartesian mind brain duality, which is perpetuated, that creates separation. And so there are just a lot of cultural constructs interjected into us. The, you know, the metaphor I give is that we're driving down the road looking at of life, looking at the scenery, and over time mud gets on the windshield and insects and birds poop on it and rocks hit it. And over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of looking through that windshield, we, we come to be entrained to what's on the windshield losing most of our view of what of what's actually going on we come to identify with all the with all the constructs and junk and dirt and and we come to identify in you ask a patient who they are and they tell you what's happened to them which in in buddhism these are called samskaras samskaras are the conditioning in of conditioned influences of life experience and interesting the chinese character the buddhist chinese character for samskara is the character in chinese medicine that's translated into element the wuxing the five transformations from a buddhist point of view are the five samskaras the five conditioning influences of mind and and People are out in that wheel, hypnotized to the events of what are going. They find themselves clinging to the wheel by conditioned by fear and desire, being spun through life by a momentum that they are unconscious of for the most part and don't really understand. And the whole point of 
Chinese medicine and of cultivational practice is to become free of that wheel so that it's spinning around you and you can see it and you're not out in it. And what we can see, we can change. So we, you know, in relationship to shock, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've written extensively about it and it's more than we can describe here. But shock exists on a continuum from very subtle to subtle to gross. And most people are in a gross shock of just not, you know, when we think about shock, we think about a horrible, like being in a car accident or the death of a loved one or having something terrible happen. And that that is shock. But there are subtler dimensions of shock which just reinforce and channel all of our attention onto the relative dimension of our experience in, in denial of the universal dimensions of self that we share with all of creation. So, so in its more subtle aspect, the evidence of shock is just separation. And separation, as I said, is pain. And and the only medicine is consciousness, which is love, and love is the proof of no separation and union. And I always think of as love contains everything, right? So it contains all the good, bad, ugly, triumphant, everything. Yeah, I no would, separation. Yes, I would. So I agree, and I'm uh, for me rather than use the word contains. I would just say love is the context. Mm. It 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 is the paper that the whole thing is printed on. Mm. So so it contains it but more than contain cuz you can think of like a bowl containing cherries. Mm-hmm. But the bowl doesn't permeate the cherries. Mm-hmm. The bowl isn't the cherries whereas love is not so we can say yes love contains it but, but it's more the fabric it's 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 the it's the fundamental vibration of the whole it is the whole mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. it is the everything else is a construct and love, love is actually what it's constructed of so how does someone from Lonnie's perspective, um, find their way into that. I don't know, even write the word. I mean, it's not like an acceptance, but like what has to open in someone to, to see that and to, to know that, understand it, to incorporate that or become that. Well, there are different stages of development most of the world, most of the humans in the world are at a pre-personal stage of development. They're living in a magic to a magic mythic or a mythic context. And the, um, you, we don't really get to a, a significant personal degree of development, personal stages of development till we break out of the membership tribe so that the membership collective is the the age you were at where the most important thing in life to you 
was having the same sneakers your friends had or the same bicycle. And like, if you really wanted a pair of sneakers and your mother, like your parents gave you a gift for your birthday and you opened it and it was another, it was a beautiful pair of sneakers, but not the same brand as your friends. You were like, no, sorry. This is, it's, you know, it's got to be this or it's got to be an orange twin varsity or it has to be a, you know, it has to be this pair of jeans or that's membership level. You're in or you're out, you're with us or you're against us. So essentially for many people, the, the imperative in medicine is to help them build egos, not to help them transcend egos. It's literally to help them become individuals. If you take somebody, you have to have an ego before you can transcend ego. You have to be someone before you can be no one. So for many of our, my patients, I'm, I'm, I was just in the treatment room with a woman yesterday. And, you know, she... When she first came in a couple of years ago, I mean, she was just, she was in shock. She was having tantrums. She was um, having panic attacks all the time. She barely had the facility when someone was asking her to do something to know where she was and whether, whether to say yes or no, or she was so blended with everything and everyone. And we were just, I was just talking with her yesterday. She was asking me about, you know, meditation and some philosophical constructs. And I said, for you, for you, we're working, we're not working on transcending ego. We're working on you building an ego. We want you to get to a point where yes means yes, no means no. You, 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 whenever you're interacting about to make a decision, a significant decision that involves time or resources or other people. You're able to take a breath, stand back, check in with yourself. You you feel the autonomy to say, I can get back to you on this in 15 minutes, or let's talk about this on Thursday. I need a little time. So for that person, we're building an ego. We're building autonomy. What we fundamentally want to do with people what what's imperative so all technique and all theory always serve who the practitioner actually is the state and stage development of the practitioner and the goal would be for the practitioner to become the self capital s and if we awaken to love as an absolute call and as an absolute demand, if we awaken to an infinite care and we put our stake in the ground that I have recognized that who my who I am, body, mind, and soul, is a vehicle for the transmission of the light of consciousness, which is love and manifests as care. And I'm, I've recognized myself as that without question, and I'm giving myself to that for the rest of my life because that's the context of my existence. The degree to which we mean it is the degree to which every structure within us 
that stands in opposition to that will become illumined to us. And then in taking on those structures and taking on that resistance, that will impart to us the compassion and the humility and the wisdom we need to become the self. And as we become the self, capital S, we just be the self and bring that to our patients. And before we prescribe an herb, before we give a needle, before we give lifestyle advice about nutrition and exercise, just who we are through resonance will catalyze to some degree the emergence of the self within the patient. And diagnosis is the process of recognizing the degree to which the self is already present and resonating through resonance with us. And that will illuminate to us in the physiological terms of Chinese medicine in this case, because we're talking about Chinese medicine, um, <clears throat> the places within the body and the, the beliefs and mental constructs that stand in opposition to the recognition of and the enacting of the self within within the individual and in the world. And the process of medicine is eliminating those stagnations. What, what we do in Chinese medicine is promote the flow of qi. We can build qi and promote the flow of qi. And promoting the flow of qi is a physiological metaphor for promoting communication between that which has become separate and separation is pain. And what we're doing is just promoting, we're, we're bringing consciousness through love. And over, and over time, we hope we endeavor to have the self emerge within the individual and encourage the patient and support the patient at first, they're having higher state experiences of union. And over time, we want higher state experiences to become translated into actual stages of development as identity shifts from self small s to self large s. In, in a really practical way, one, one thing that's like coming up for me right now is thinking about how you know we can apply this sort of mythic membership um stage to our uh, to to the internal self so much so thinking that you're separate from your body and that your body is the enemy and there's creating that separation and or even thinking that like the mind really wants this thing of chocolate the body doesn't but the mind does and that they're not related and i'm wondering is like you know as we as we um uh, allow for a different stage to emerge. Um, we start to be like, oh, I love this body. This body is part, it's a vehicle for everything. Yeah. It's, it's so sweet. And then we, there's so much less conflict in doing things that are wholesome for the whole. So what you described isn't the mythic membership stage. Everything else okay. is, that is correct. <laughs> what, what, what it is, is that, 
So the mythic membership stage is one unquestioningly you believe in Santa Claus. Okay, okay. Mythic rational is when you go to your parents when you're 10 and you're not sure and you say, you know, mom and dad, I looked up the chimney today and there's no way a 300-pound guy with a huge sack of toys gets down an eight-inch hole. And the answer is, they're not sure whether to spell the myth now for you. They're kind of attached because they want to put, they like riding the letter and putting out the milk and cookies and they don't want to see you not. So they say, you just have to know Santa in your heart. You just believe. Mm. That's mythic rational. Mm. In, in mythic, the translations of myth are literal. In mythic rational, the, mm. the, literal translations begin to fail in rational you say no way it happens there is no santa claus and what you do is begin repressing at that point you just think that myth is all literal because you've just woken up out of literal myth my parents lied to me and then you think you go around telling all your friends there is no santa claus because you're going to be the change agent mm -hmm. and all the other parents get mad at you because you're the one going around ruining their kids, taking their kids out of myth, out of the mythic collective. And you start thinking everyone who still believes in Santa is stupid. Mm -hmm. So, so as rationality comes in, it represses the unconscious. It represses myth. It doesn't have the capacity to understand the mythic language is an adequate language of the subtle realm, and it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's all metaphor. Hmm. There are all the mythic language is a subtle language for dream time and psychoanalytic projection. But when you get to postmodern, which is the stage beyond rationality, postmodernism begins to cease repressing. It overthrows the church. It overthrows the state by deconstructing power hierarchies. And then the world becomes re-enchanted. And Joni Mitchell sings, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And that's where the Eastern traditions come into the West and psychedelics start being used. And there's this, and everyone starts doing yoga and transcendental meditation in the 60s and 70s. And there's sort of this, um, a sensation, a cessation of repression and a, a sort of bringing the baby back that got thrown out of with, with the materialistic bathwater. My my right. book, my recent book, Deepening Perspectives on Chinese Medicine, is a thousand fifty pages, looking at Chinese medicine as as the art and science of human development. And we look, and I I spent five six hundred pages, looking at the moment before conception, through conception, up through death, and the moment after death, through all the meridians and points and and five elements and theories of Chinese medicine. Yes, 
Andrew. Thank you, Lonnie, for for writing that book. It's um, it's for for one thing, like like I think we said before, a magnum opus, and I think it's it's you know so deeply spiritual. Uh, I think anyone that wants to, anyone that's a healer, you know, practitioner that that wants to is called to do the deep work, like like you've been detailing this podcast today, should really pick up that book. And and I would say, would you say it would be helpful for for like people that are not practitioners as well? I mean, wh- where do you see that for that book? Well, yes. I mean, it's a deeply philosophical text. It uses the language of Chinese medicine. Um, but I explain the terms. I also think my for, for non-practitioners, my first book, Nourishing Destiny, is a really good introduction. But I and you know many people read that who who are just patients or interested in qigong tai chi, but you know I I give a two year class in Chinese medicine five element diagnosis pulse diagnosis, I'm starting another one in September. Um, people can get all my stuff at lonniejarrett.com, and look I've had people who were the 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 heads of philosophy departments at universities take it i've had many 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 people take it who were not practitioners who who later went on to become practitioners or there were oriental you know asian body workers or so i mean any, anyone could could take that my books are i think nourishing destiny is a really good place for people to start if you're not a practitioner but if you're really interested in developmental spirituality, evolutionary spirituality, Teilhard de Chardin, Sri Aurobindo, and all the developmentalists and process-oriented philosophers from Heraclitus forward, then this deepening perspective would be a book I think that would be meaningful to people. Thank you so much, Lonnie, for coming on today. I don't know if Liz, you have any other final thoughts, but I really enjoy this conversation. We're so honored to have you on today. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, it's It's good to see you. Yeah, it's wonderful to spend time with you both, and um, yeah, to just everybody who's who's listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.